I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. On this episode of Warriors in Their Own Words, we hear from Iraq War combat vet Chris Goldsmith, who, as a 19-year-old soldier, was tasked with photographing corpses and documenting mass graves. He developed severe PTSD, and in 2007, as the result of a suicide attempt that caused him to miss redeployment, was given a less than honorable discharge. After years of legal battles, that discharge was upgraded. Chris went on to advocate for other veterans with PTSD who received bad paper discharges and helped pass crucial legislation that helps them receive the benefits they deserve. For me, Chris's story is especially important. It reminds us that for many of America's warriors, the experience of combat can have lifelong effects. Chris's interview is only partly about his time in Iraq. It is also about the battles he fought at home to change the way the military treats service members suffering from PTSD. If you are a veteran in crisis or have a battle buddy who is suffering, help is available. The Veterans Crisis Hotline is free. The number is 800-273-8255. We'll leave that in the show notes. Thank you for listening. So I wanted to join the military from the time I was a toddler. I feel like a lot of young boys in the United States go through a phase at some point where they kind of, you know, all they want to do is like wear their police uniform or their fireman's uniform from Halloween on like every day of the year. And I kind of never grew out of that. You know, I, in most pictures that I can think of off the top of my head of, of me as a little kid, it's me wearing camouflage with a pair of dog tags. You know, I saw the military as an opportunity to serve the United States. And that is just a drive that I have always had. It's like baked into my character. And frankly, I can't quite put my finger on the genesis of it. It's just I and even today, I gain no more satisfaction than feeling like I've left the world a better place. And, you know, when I was a kid and, and even, you know, when I was serving in the military, I didn't quite have a, the same concept of democracy and liberty and justice and these, you know, values that are enshrined in our, in our constitution and founding documents and everything. But those are things that for some reason I was just always obsessed with uh, as a kid. So I was born in 1985. Uh, one of my like earliest memories are of the conclusion of the Gulf War and, and the yellow ribbons that were on, you know, wrapped around trees in my neighborhood to symbolize, you know, waiting for people to come home. Uh, and I remember the parades after the victory of, of the Gulf War. And, you know, for the rest of my childhood, it was peacetime. And then 9-11 happened. And as a Long Islander, when 9-11 happened, I was close enough that I could see the smoke of, of the towers from my house. It felt like, you now while I didn't know anyone who died on that day, it felt like everyone in my life had lost someone. All of my friends, families, 
um, you know, a lot of a lot of people who have parents who worked in the city, they all knew somebody who who had died on that day. So my desire to serve became a little different because now there was an explicit enemy, at least that I perceived at the time. And I joined the army after I graduated high school in 2003, went to basic training in, in 2004, and I enlisted as a forward observer. So my job was essentially blow stuff up. And the way that I explain this to people is if you ever see a movie like, like even Forrest Gump, where everybody's walking through the jungle or, or a city and they start taking machine gun fire from, from somewhere and everybody hits the ground. And then there's this, the camera cuts to a nerdy guy with a big radio on his back and glasses yelling into the mic. Well, I was that nerdy guy with the glasses. That's what I joined the army to do to when the infantry got attacked, it was my job to blow stuff up and, and try and get everybody home. But when I went to Sadr city, Baghdad, uh, in January of 2005, a year after I went to basic training, it was too densely populated uh, for me to do my the job that I was trained for. So they kind of made something up for me. And this is something that kind of became the standard for a lot of forward observers, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly in, in areas where you couldn't use things like mortars and artillery. And I became like an on-the-ground intelligence reporter. So what that meant is at the age of 19 years old, it was my job to do things like photo document mass graves. And that is something that, that there is no training for that I know of. There is no preparation for that. There is nothing like human death. You know, that you, can, you could be a hunter, you could, you know, be a fisherman, um, you know, have, have killed animals, killed fish, gutted them, cooked them and everything. Uh, but that type of death has purpose. The stuff that I was experiencing was just simply witnessing and documenting uh, violence against human beings that I couldn't understand. It wasn't always mass graves. It was more typically ones and twos of, of people who were just murdered for reasons that we would never discover. You know, one example would be one day we were talking to an Iraqi policeman at a police station and he seemed kind of nervous and he was trying to like communicate through our, through our interpreter that he didn't feel safe. And, you know, we went back out on our patrol and then we got a call to say that we had to go check on a, on a body that was discovered outside a police station. And we go back to that police station and it was that guy who was just telling us he didn't feel safe. You know, he was, he was probably murdered by the other cops that we just continued dealing with for, for the rest of the deployment. And it was my job to take photos of his face and his brains uh, that were on the street. You know, another day that it's like when the only date that really sticks out for me during my deployment is May 15th, 2005. We were called in because they had found a body in like a trash dump. And we get there, drive the Humvees up over a berm. And this spot is like the... It's the beginning of fields just outside of a really, really densely populated city. It's like a very hard drop. Like you have city, you cross the street, and then it's trash fields. And it's also where all the sewage runs. 
So I remember, you know, pulling up, getting out of the Humvee and there's a, a donkey, a dead donkey sitting there and there's just maggots, just, you could see it, see maggots writhing under the skin, the stench of that death, plus the sewage that was, you know, streaming by us and pooling around us and the trash. And May 15th is, you know, pretty close to as, as high as the, the sun gets in the sky. So it's baking, baking hot, so hot. You can't touch your weapon without gloves. And as we get into this scene, we had gotten a call for like a body or a couple bodies. It ended up being over a dozen. And it was my job to, you know, take this 2005, like 1.2 pixel, gigapixel, whatever they're called, uh, camera and, and document everything that I was seeing and witnessing. And so I was doing things like taking pictures of you know, a couple teenagers and, and young men uh, pulling on the arms of a fresh corpse that had, I guess, been buried just shortly before discovery. And it was my job to take close-up photos of each of the faces as they load the, loaded the bodies into the back of these little flatbed pickup trucks. Uh, another soldier would, would lift the face by the hair and I would get up right in front of the face and take a close-up. And the blood that was coagulating inside the sinus cavity would sling out and, you know, fling at me as the flies are landing on the dead bodies, the blood, the you know, all of the mess. Uh, then the flies would land on my face. You know, they're, they're seeking moisture when it's that hot. They need a ton of moisture just to survive. So... You know, one of the things that I came home with was not just uh, every time I t took a picture on the back of the camera, there was this like one and a half inch screen. And I didn't realize this until later on that I wasn't really looking around directly at things. I was looking through the camera at that little screen. And every time I took a picture, it would freeze that photo on the back for a couple of seconds. And each one of those little photos on the back of the camera, like just burned into my mind. And when I came home, the smell and the like taste of the air stuck with me. You know, the images were there. And anytime that I saw like almost any level of violence in a movie or a TV show, those images would come back in my head. And you know, with the hindsight of, of a, a lot of therapy, I realized why I always drank vodka after I came home. And because in my mind, it was like the closest thing that I could get to rubbing alcohol. And I was trying to burn the taste and the smell of that particular scene out of my body. One of the things that I would do when I would drink this a ton and a ton of vodka is I would get into the shower and, and put it like scalding hot and I would pass out and my roommates would find me, you know, sometimes hours later, you know, skin pink and scalded and covered in vomit. These are things that I was doing when I was too inebriated to know what I was doing, right? So I'm, I'm kind of just like putting it back together after the fact, but it wasn't like a, you know, a one-time thing. It wasn't like a once in a while thing. 
this is kind of like all I did for years after coming home. My job ended up being basically kind of take like part of what the lieutenant's job was supposed to be and, and prepare a debrief after every patrol. So, you know, whereas everybody else who got off a patrol would kind of like take off their gear, relax, get some sleep if they could, shower if we had water available. I would sit at my computer sometimes for hours putting together what was supposed to be intelligence to go passing up the chain. And so rather than, you know, coming back and decompressing and, and talking about it the way that I think would probably be a lot more healthy, I was immediately reliving it, you know, trying to do an analysis of, of photos. And I wasn't trained like, you know, some sort of CSI or NCIS forensic scientists. I was just a kid and I was basically tasked with writing the intelligence briefs that were ostensibly to help these victims of torture and murder find justice, which, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% sure that none of that work that I ever did helped any of the victims in, in any way. It was basically just my job was documenting um, brutality for the for the fuck of it, because somebody needed to be able to say that we did a report at the end of the day. I have the same brotherhood as everybody else. I lived in an infantry unit, lived with uh, uh, an infantry platoon. So me and the medic uh, for the platoon, we being kind of specialized and needed for every mission meant that, you know, rather than cycling through things like Tower Guard, which frankly, I, I never wanted to do Tower Guard. It was a good part of the deal as far as I was concerned. Never had like the sit around for a few hours and talk to somebody kind of thing. For me, my deployment was if I was awake, I was working the vast majority of the time. You know, my my platoon, my my company, as far as I could tell, my battalion, you know, had a policy of rotating guys out. You know, is the the entire platoon is never out at the same time. There's not enough trucks and there's not enough room in the trucks for everybody. So some people got cycled out for rest. That never happened for me. So at, at 19, 20 years old, any day that the platoon was moving, I was, I was moving to. So after I came home from my year-long deployment, it was immediately clear to everyone else in my life that something was seriously wrong and needed to be addressed. And for me now, at this point in my life, uh, looking back, I recognized that I had really severe post-traumatic stress disorder and was exhibiting signs and symptoms two years before I was diagnosed with it. Coming home uh, still in an infantry unit, you know, your sense of normalcy is, is uh, based on your surroundings and your experience. And for us, we were all going through the same thing. And, you know, we all used to, you know, joke about like, ah, oh, these like these frat boys in college, like think they can drink. Well, they don't know, you know, they can't hold a candle to what we do. And it's, well, we weren't necessarily drinking for fun. You know, we, we may have had fun when we went out and drank, but, you know, we were at the barracks doing a whole host of, of things uh, that weren't, you know, drinking for fun. 
we were punishing ourselves. In a lot of cases, a lot of guys would just drink hard liquor, not like drink hard liquor neat from a rocks glass, like drinking wild turkey or Everclear out of the bottle. That's not fun. N nobody likes it. Doesn't matter if they pretend to. You know, we would all drink until we threw up and then we would drink some more. You know, we were getting in fist fights. I was lucky to have to have never landed in legal trouble, but there was a night when when I got in a fight with a guy who was twice my size. I, I choked him out. We both rolled through some glass and I thought I killed him. There were times when I'd be in a crowd and I would for some reason focus on someone who I thought had like done something wrong and like wait until that person in the crowd was next to me and I'd go after them. You know, I'd be out drinking with friends that I grew up with who had, you know, not gone through the military experience. We'd be at a bar and the next thing they'd know I'm outside rolling on, on the ground with somebody, you know, some guys got DUIs, some guys, um, you know, ended up getting demoted. Uh, and most of the bad things that we experienced and that we, that we did, had to do with our deployments and, and the things that we had experienced during them. You know, in my case, um, you know, the guys that I was drinking with for us, you know, we drink, we fight, we throw up, whatever. That's all normal. So the thing that made me different from a lot of guys is I never got in trouble. I was very good at basically passing out before I could do anything too stupid. And I got promoted ahead of my peers. I made sergeant in just about two years of active duty. You know, after becoming this intelligence guy, using air quotes, uh, I was made the communications sergeant because they were like, oh, this kid has a brain and he's, you know, trustworthy. So we'll put him in charge of a couple million dollars worth of, of equipment that he's not trained or qualified to maintain. <laughs> um, and as much as I was not happy with the army or, or with my deployment, I was very good at it. You know, I could meet and exceed all expectations. Uh, even though after I came home from Iraq, I was, I was miserable and I was suicidal. And, you know, I went for about a year after coming home where I was starting to realize that was so, that something was wrong. And I was, kind of trying to get help, like going to the medics and saying like, Hey, how do I see somebody to talk about this? And, uh, a huge failure of my union uh, unit at third ID. They, they moved the mental health ward from these trailers that had been across the street from where I had to show up for work every day at my company, uh, which still had the signs like behavioral health and everything. They moved the unit to the hospital without telling any of the medics, so when I was asking for help, they'd say, yeah, just go across the street. And then I'd open up the door of a trailer uh, marked with behavioral health. And it looked like a scene out of The Walking Dead, like knocked over tables, decrepit furniture and stuff, papers strewn about. And I, I never got help um, until I started having panic attacks at work. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. 
In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. My first panic attack came after I found out that I was stop lost. That was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. So my contract was supposed to end with the army in May of 2007. And in January of 2007, George Bush announces the troop surge into Iraq, which means that it doesn't matter what my contract says because the deployment date for my unit got moved up, I'm going with them. So because we were expecting it to be a 16 month deployment or so, I would effectively be kept in the army for an extra two years. And after all that I had experienced and the deep unhappiness, the deep depression that I was experiencing for so long and the anxiety of of feeling like I had lost control over my life, it started to be, started to push symptoms into my life that I could no longer ignore, I could no longer suppress, and I could no longer drink away. And I remember one morning, shortly after finding out that I was stop lost, we went for a, a release run. So, you know, we'd run out like, I don't know, three miles or something like that. And then once we get to that three mile point, they say, all right, you know, go at your own pace, run back to the Italian headquarters, company headquarters. And, you know, having been a cross country guy and a track guy, like I was faster than everybody else. So I used to be in the habit of get back, you know, race everybody, beat everybody, and then sit down and wait for, you know, 15 minutes, a half hour, whatever it was for the rest of the company to show up. So I could deal with the final formation for the morning and, and go home and shower. And, during that time, you know, I, I used to kind of like do this meditation thing where I would run. And during that time, before anybody else was back at the headquarters, I would, you know, sit down on the ground uh, and basically imitate like a monk that I had seen on TV or something like that. And just kind of control my breathing and, and feel my heart rate slow down. And there was this day when I just I tried to do that and I could feel my heart in my neck, I could feel it beating in my neck and my head and the pace did not shut down. It didn't slow down at all. And I waited, you know, 15 minutes and people started showing up a half hour later and my heart is still beating hard and fast as if I were still actively sprinting. And at this point, I'm freaking out because I think I'm having a heart attack. 
it feels like I'm having a heart attack. My chest is just tightening and it's hard to breathe. And my heart, I can, with the tension in my chest, I can feel my heart moving in my chest. So I tell my, you know, I tell my supervisor, I'm like, Hey, listen, I think I'm having a serious, like a heart problem. I need to go to the hospital. So he, he lets me go, go to the hospital. Uh, these symptoms persist for, I don't know what feels like hours. They eventually get me on an EKG and, um, you know, they detect no arrhythmia, no irregular heartbeat and due to blood pressure and blood work and everything. And finally, at the end of the day, this has been a whole day of tests. I sit down with a, uh, a PA and the physician's assistant asks me like, hey, listen, like you're one of the healthiest people we've seen in here. Like there is absolutely nothing wrong with your heart, with your breathing, anything like you are perfectly healthy young man. So do you think maybe you might be stressed? And up to this point, that was the first time that anyone had asked me anything remotely like that at all under any circumstances in the army. And I didn't exactly unload on this guy, but, but I did tell him like some of what I had been, been through, you know, not, not necessarily like what happened to me in Iraq, but what the symptoms that I was feeling and, you know, saying like it really started to exacerbate when I found out I was stop loss and like, now I can't breathe. I clearly think something's wrong. And he just goes, all right, well, you know, you just walk down this hallway and that's where the behavioral health clinic is. So after a year plus of looking for this behavioral health clinic, I finally find it because I had a panic attack and sitting there for a couple more hours, um, finally get to see a doctor for a couple of minutes and I get prescribed this anti-depression drug or anti-anxiety drug. You know, I would only find out months or a year later or so that uh, for someone in my age range, you know, some of the symptoms of taking that type of drug and the type of drugs that I had been kind of cycling through over the following four months is increased suicidality, increased depression, increased anxiety. So I can't say that the, the medicine made it happen, uh, but I can say for certain that after that first diagnosis, that first prescription, things just got worse. And uh, that culminated, um, I guess, like four months or so later, the weekend of Memorial Day, I attempt suicide, my usual poison of vodka um, and a handful of pills. And, you know, thankfully, my roommate at the time and, and best friend from guy I knew from basic training figured it all out as it was happening, called the police. And luckily they found me. I ended up for about two weeks on a lockdown mental ward uh, at Wynn Army Community Hospital at Fort Stewart. And from that moment that I woke up, everything was different. I, I had been kind of a golden boy in my unit, you know, never got in trouble, promoted ahead of my peers, um, had tons of friends and everything. And then all of a sudden I woke up and I was treated like a criminal, you know, total like black sheep. So not only had I lost my, my sense of, of control in life, I had with my suicide attempt lost my entire support network. And shortly after that, 
within three months, I was out of the army. I went from being Sergeant Goldsmith back to Chris living in his childhood bedroom for my suicide attempt, which they considered to be an act of misconduct. And that only exacerbated the, the PTSD. So though I did still qualify for mental health or VA healthcare benefits, I no longer qualified for the GI Bill and coming into uh, the Great Recession, you know, I spent about five years in the dark. And honestly, I can't remember most of my early to mid-20s. You know, I spent about five years in a very dark hole. It was one of those things where like everyone around me could see something's wrong. And with hindsight, I can, you know, realize that I kind of saw it in their face, even if they never actually said anything to me, that, that a lot of people in my life knew that I wasn't the same as I was prior to all these experiences. But thankfully, with general discharge, I qualified for VA healthcare. And through a lot of therapy and a lot of, you know, talking it out and, you know, uh, describing my experiences, I was invited to speak at, at colleges, basically, uh, by like college professors who wanted their uh, students to have a, you know, a, a firsthand account of what the Iraq war was like and, and the veteran experience was like. So, you know, that was kind of my exposure therapy rather than sit down and talk with a doc about the same thing over and over again about like a traumatic experience. I would, I would dump all of that on like a bunch of poor college students. And at this point in my life, it's far less raw than it used to be. Uh, but I remember like going into a, an auditorium and like just watching a ton of people cry as I talked about the, the shit that I had like just gone through. And, you know, I guess they could see it in my face, like literally to a certain extent, because I often had fresh bruises and scars and cuts on my face from like getting in bar fights. They could see the physical toll that it had taken on me. And after doing that, like, unofficial re-exposure therapy, I would go to the doctor and then, like, talk about that instead. And, and thankfully, that, that seems to have, like, really helped me process a lot of this stuff. And, you know, it took a half a decade and, and a lot of harmful self-medication, but I eventually started getting better. And things really turned around when I found out I was eligible for vocational rehabilitation or VRE, which would help me go to school. So, with my bad paper discharge, I had been excised not just from the Army, but from the veteran community. I was ineligible to join all major veteran service organizations. You know, with a general discharge, getting kicked out for misconduct, um, I didn't really feel comfortable around other veterans. You know, I I knew that I had I had served honorably, but that scarlet letter of, of a bad paper discharge, it pulled me away from the brotherhood. And when I got to my community college, after years of really being like, not associating with other vets a whole lot, uh, I was introduced to Student Veterans of America. And that was the first veterans organization that I truly became a part of. You know, it was the first thing where there were like defined meetings and there were like mutual interests and missions and activities. Uh, and I'm not talking about like flag football activities. I, you know, 
I'm talking about like inviting public speakers to, you know, talk about their transition experience and what kind of services are available to, to combat vets who maybe don't feel comfortable going to the VA. And I kind of went from being this, you know, playing a lot of bad stereotypes or, or exhibiting a lot of bad stereotypes, I guess, of being like the disgruntled vet who like didn't feel comfortable talking to anybody. So even among vets, like I would, I would go into our student veterans club area and like kind of have a, a hood over my head and like earphones in and sit there and do my homework and not really even look at anybody. And within the first semester, a bunch of combat vets, uh, you know, whether they knew what they were doing or not, I can't, I honestly still don't know, like, but they helped pull me out of that. But they literally saw me sitting by myself and forced me to socialize. And, and that was like a major breakthrough for me after being so alone and so depressed and, and suicidal for so long, I got my brotherhood back. It, it wasn't the same one, you know, it wasn't the guys that I deployed with, I, you know, I still don't have a relationship with a whole lot of them after the way they left the military, but I had a bunch of other combat guys who, um, you know, if they didn't go through something exactly like what I had, they had close friends who, you know, might've gotten run out of the military or who had survived suicide attempts. And through that student veterans organization, you know, I went from being the guy who doesn't talk to anybody and sits in the corner to getting elected to serve as the president, as the representative of a bunch of vets. And from that position, you know, it was the first opportunity that I had to get a taste of the leadership role that, that I had as a sergeant and, you know, feeling responsible for people and, and feeling like I was able to help other vets who were having trouble transitioning to, to have an easier time than I had. And through that veterans organization, I, I found advocacy, you know, and, and thanks to a, uh, a, a real good mentor, not a vet, but somebody who knew how DC worked and policymaking worked, I was able to use my role as president of this community colleges student veterans America chapter to to move the nation on the way that veterans with bad paper were were not just perceived by the general public but were perceived by policymakers in DC and and the military and veterans at large you know when I had bad paper in 2007, I was excised from the community. And that was not just a, the military did it to me kind of thing. Like the brass did it to me kind of thing. It was, it was imposed by the vets community too. Um, I, there were not a lot of veterans organizations at the time that would, uh, that would accept a vet with bad paper, even a general discharge like my own, let alone a veteran with an OTH. And Within a year of my first semester of, of college, as the president of a student veterans organization, I was on the ground in D.C. with a couple other vets from my college uh, walking around Capitol Hill trying to get my first bill passed. And 
within a year of, of first setting foot in DC, I succeeded. And, you know, through that process, I learned how to not just tell my story and, and like tell people how bad it is and like the bad things that I went through it, uh, for it. I learned how to make things better. And, you know, with my first bill, the Military Mental Health Review Board Improvement Act, I made sure that what happened to me, which was in appealing my bad paper discharge, a foot doctor, a podiatrist, uh, looked at my mental health records and determined that, you know, he wasn't going to perceive my PTSD as, as legitimate uh, and therefore deny my discharge upgrade appeal. Well, now that doctor, because according to the law, there had to be an MD there. Uh, now that expert witness has to have specific training in mental health. So if now the psychiatrist or a psychologist, someone with uh, legitimate certifications and training so that they understand mental health and that they're not just, you know, able to say I'm a doctor and I'm looking at stuff that I'm not qualified to review or, or provide judgment over. So over the years since then, I've, I've found that advocacy is kind of my calling. And a year after getting my first bill passed, I made it into Columbia University and not having ever really even wanted to go to college, you know, only wanting to have served in the military uh, to live. You know, I, I think a lot of people join the military thinking they're going to retire and reality hits them. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I found that continuing to serve my country through helping other veterans to stop them from meeting these arbitrary rules and laws and regulations that frankly ruin lives for the good of nothing. You know, I've, I've spent years helping people understand that just because a veteran got with, got a bad paper discharge, even if they did do something wrong, you know, it's, it's not necessarily right to hit them with a lifetime punishment you know, the, the loss of a lifetime of benefits, which are meant to help vets heal, recover and move on after they serve their country. You can do something wrong in the civilian world and you go to jail and, and you get out and that's the end of it. You know, it may mess up your credit score. It may make it a little hard to find a job, you know, but a lot of people are, are able to recover from with the military. Uh, you're going in with bad paper discharges, a lot of the times with things like PTSD and, and traumatic brain injury and other illnesses and injuries that are unique to the veteran population are unique to people who have volunteered to serve their country. Uh, and for, you know, a lot of us during a time of war, knowing that we'd be sent to combat. So, you know, I took that lesson of, learning to tell my story and come up with a policy proposal to, to use my story as an example of, of like something bad that happened and then provide an answer. Like it doesn't have to happen. If we do this, we get this law passed. So in my case, get a mental health professional to be the judge of mental health, medical paperwork 
And I now teach that to other veterans through my nonprofit, High Ground Veterans Advocacy. So, you know, that that story, that that individual's story of their experiences in the military as a veteran is an incredible tool. And, you know, I I have had the uh, the honor and the privilege to see other veterans raise issues that I had never heard about and take my experiences, you know, all of the, the pain and the suffering that I went through to learn these lessons and ultimately advocacy and turn them into positive changes for vets who are facing problems and issues that I, before meeting them, had never heard. Um, it's been really cool being able to figure out a way to continue to serve my country. You know, wearing a uniform didn't work out for me, but I can honestly say that all things being as they are, there's not a whole lot that I could do in uniform to make the world a better place. But as, as a veteran advocate, um, I've been able to, uh, if not help millions of people, um, at least, you know, set the future up in a, in a better way for millions of people. That was Chris Goldsmith, an Iraq War combat veteran. To hear more about Chris's veterans advocacy and his most recent work fighting domestic violent extremism, listen to his interview on our other podcast, Burn the Boats, out next Wednesday. And again, if you are a veteran in crisis or have a battle buddy who is suffering, help is available. The Veterans Crisis Line is free. That number is 800-273-8255, and we'll leave it in the show notes. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear from James E.T. Hopkins, a thoracic surgeon and member of Merrill's Marauders, who was tasked with treating wounds on the battlefield. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.